Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save forty percent on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power twenty twenty three award information, visit jdpower dot com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber dot com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile dot com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile dot com and use promo code Listen to get fifty dollars off your purchase of five hundred dollars or more. That's code Listen at BlueNile dot com for fifty dollars off your purchase. BlueNile dot com code Listen. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How did it get thirty? Thirty? How did it get thirty? How did it get twenty? 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 How did it get twenty? Twenty? How did it get fifteen? 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 Just fifteen bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash-switch. Forty-five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save forty percent on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power twenty twenty three award information, visit jdpower dot com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber dot com. Hello and welcome, delegates from all over the world, to the delegation game episode six. We have hopefully enjoyed our well-deserved break from all things delegate. I, for one, really enjoyed my time off, but I'm ready today to get back into the swing of things. Matters did not sit still while Woodrow Wilson and all of us returned home, and in this packed episode, we catch up on several matters which our little holiday had kicked down the road. Judging by everyone's willingness to drop off the radar over the last week, I'm going to take that as approval for the policy of having little breaks in the future. However, rather than take a break every X amount of weeks, 
I'm going to tell you now about the three occasions where I'll be taking that Saturday off. The 30th of March, the 4th of May and the 1st of June will be holidays for us delegates. But otherwise, we'll be taking our narrative onwards and upwards with increasing velocity as we get closer and closer to that deadline. If you're keeping up with the regular Versailles anniversary project, then you'll know that the last two weeks of February 1919 were eventful indeed. But here we're going to try something a bit different, by covering some of the events that happened over the previous fortnight in our alternative history tale, and bringing the narrative back up to speed in the process. Some actual events, like the assassination attempt on Georges Clemenceau, still took place, and Wilson still returned to the United States to present the League. This time around, though, as we now know, thanks to the results of our poll, you delegates have voted to support Wilson and commend his efforts. This gesture of moral support will be invaluable to the beleaguered president, and he will certainly be relieved to note that Theodore Roosevelt was not gunning after his role as leader of the American delegation in Paris. Roosevelt remained head of his own delegation, and in this episode, as we'll see, matters take another interesting turn where the American representatives are concerned. We have no new delegates to cover this week, but don't forget that if you're listening right now and you'd like to play this game, then you can, of course, simply by heading to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails or wdfpodcast.com forward slash delegation game. Don't think that just because we're in episode six or week seven that it's too late to join us. Please feel free to begin your journey to Paris. And if you're feeling bold enough, plan your grand entrance accordingly by noting what you're up against here and connecting with me about the kind of entrance you'd like to make. As you've surely learned by now, each episode sees the spotlight shine on a certain delegate as we tell our story. And if you play your cards right, that certain delegate could well be you. I think that's going to do it for our introduction then. Without any further ado, I will now take you to a very different final fortnight of February 1919 than you may have been used to. The tiger has been shot. The tiger has been shot, bellowed a greasy-looking Frenchman as he burst through the door. At once, René, Massigli and Albert Clavel stood up from their chairs, which had the effect of creating a loud scraping sound that only served to add an exclamation point to the stunning news. Both men's faces were ashen. Is he dead? asked the puffing cigarette machine who was still seated. Carhu Rosnak had been waiting days for his morning meeting with the two Frenchmen, and it was just his luck that when he had finally gotten around to revealing the extent of Nikola Pesic's devious designs, such an interruption would take place. Rosnak immediately suspected that the Serbian Premier was involved. He had already assassinated one national figure after all. Perhaps he had gotten a taste for it. In his impatience, Rosnak realised he had been a touch too blunt. The two Frenchmen were staring daggers at him. You better hope Monsieur Clemenceau lives, Clavel spat, or insignificant minnows like yours will be devoured without mourning. The words had been practically launched at Rosnak without hesitation, and they then hung in the air. It was as though the two Frenchmen had felt this way all along. His insignificant minnow of a nation still contained 1.5 million Slovenians, and this was supposed to be the place to represent them. It had been a mistake coming to these Frenchmen. Perhaps establishing a connection with the newly empowered German delegates would be a good idea after all. As the two Frenchmen rushed out of the room, barely 15 minutes into their morning meeting, Rosnak already found himself plotting revenge. It seemed that being around Nikola Pesic long enough had turned him into precisely the kind of schemer 
that he had once despised. Rosnack felt excited and ashamed all at once. He checked his watch, 9.15am on the 19th of February. There was still time to intercept the Germans, who were on their way to the Council of Twelve. If he was lucky, perhaps this day would not be a total loss after all. It took so long for Rosnack to exit the Hotel Zachary that he found himself walking briskly and then attempting a light jog. Security had arrived en masse at the Hotel Zachary, perhaps under the impression that once again these delegates had somehow been responsible for events involving a firearm. Rosnack was sure he would learn more details of the incident soon enough. If the old man was dead or alive, it made little difference to him. All that really mattered was making something of this day while he still had the chance. It was far from easy to smoke and jog, especially while his blasted lungs were giving him such trouble. Rosnack found himself checking his hand whenever he coughed into it. Could this be the dreaded TB? Still, there was no blood, which was a relief, but this cough was getting no better. A visit to the doctor would be advisable soon enough. As it happened, the heightened security cost Rosnack his opportunity. Either that or the German delegates were exceptionally early and had arrived at Stephen Pichon's room 15 minutes before schedule. Rosnack couldn't help but marvel at the large oak door, which led to the great room where the French foreign minister had held the last month's meetings of the Council of Ten. Now, of course, the gathering had been recast as the Council of Twelve to mark the arrival of the two German delegates, Paul von Leto Vorbeck and Horten von Hotzendorf. Every intelligent man, it was said, feared von Leto Vorbeck, but it was also rumoured that the veteran Junker, commander of the African campaigns, merely put up his gruff exterior as a front, so that Horten von Hotzendorf's more conciliatory act would complement his style. Rosnack had heard one of the American delegates refer to it as good cop, bad cop, but he did not quite understand what a cop was, or how it could be both good and bad to be one. Rosnack found that his heart was still pounding. The ten-minute jog to the Quai d'Orsay should not have been so taxing. Perhaps he needed to engage in those daily bouts of exercise, as the physician had recommended. Still, now that he was present, he could potentially wait to ambush the Germans before they entered. It was then that he detected voices, though, coming from inside the room. The language used was German, and it sounded like three men. Had these rapscallions arrived early to take advantage of Clemenceau's plight? Had they invited their dastardly Austrian friend, who Rosnack found himself instinctively unable to trust? Karl Renner was a politician through and through, and he had offered Rosnack a cigarette in the past, but that did not change the past. He hoped to meet the Germans without their Austrian appendage present, but ever since their recent accreditation as full delegates on the Supreme Council, the Austrians had been joining their wartime allies more than more. Rosnack worried that the Germans intended to carve up East and Central Europe together with the Austrians, yet there was also a chance that the very threat of this scheme might grant Slovenia some advantageous leverage. He wouldn't achieve much standing outside the door either way. The door was plainly not locked, all it would take was a stern push, and he would be in a position to harness the German power. Rosnack took a deep breath, took a long, greedy drag from his cigarette, and pushed the door firmly open. Horten von Hotzendorf could not remember the last time he had seen Paul von Leto Vorbeck so relaxed. It seemed almost inappropriate, considering the circumstances. They had thought it unusual that the French Premier was late, but lately these meetings had descended into something of a farce. 
Clemenceau seemed to be doing all possible, all that he could to avoid attending, to avoid legitimising the decision to accredit these Germans and grant them seats on the Supreme Council. It had taken the French Premier several days to recover from the blow that that decision represented, and he had cried out for a scapegoat, for something, for anything, to explain the catastrophe. The leaders of Italy, the United States, the United Kingdom had all left within a few days of each other. Ostensibly they had left to attend to domestic matters, but this left the fort in the hands of a very stubborn and very beleaguered Clemenceau. There were far worse fortress leaders on hand, but the prospect of facing the renewed diplomatic attack of the Germans alone made Clemenceau weary. It wasn't merely the challenges which lay ahead though, but the affront to France which the empowering of the Germans represented that truly made Clemenceau's blood boil. Were he to leave the scene, then perhaps only Edward House stood in the way of the Germans, dominating the Council of Twelve through sheer force of personality alone. The Council of Twelve. Clemenceau had never actually used this term, referring now only to this as the Council at all times. He didn't want to give Germany the satisfaction. Horton von Hotzendorf knew that for sure. Another thing Horton knew was that he and von Leto Vorbeck would, by necessity, have to work overtime in these meetings if their homeland was to stand any chance of survival. Revolutions from the left, paramilitary violence on the right, and hostile neighbours all around. Germany was in a dire state, and while President Friedrich Ebert had stabilised the government and relocated to Weimar, there was still much to be done. A great way to buoy up the embattled regime was to solidify some favourable treaties with foreign powers. So far it had been difficult to leverage the Council of Twelve, but the happy coincidence of so many Allied leaders making a simultaneous exit granted Germany a unique opportunity in Paris. Now, with Clemenceau's reported assassination, whether the tiger was alive or dead, it was certain that things would never be the same again. It was difficult to feel sorry for Clemenceau, after all the work he had done obstructing German interests in the previous few days. At news of the terrible incident, the other Allied leaders had evacuated the room to inform their delegations. Horton thought it best to stay here and talk now that they had the room to themselves. Paradoxically, there was more privacy here than back at the Hotel Zachary anyway. Once the Allies had left, Horton sent for Karl Renner so that the Austrian Chancellor would see that Germany continued to fight for that country's interests. The Big Six's leaders had gathered early that morning for the express purpose of making a productive start and to avoid any potentially eager delegates from the minor powers nabbing them on the way to the Quai d'Orsay. It had become a favourite tactic of some of the smaller powers to use the opportunity of a walking delegate to make their case. Just the day before, Bonifacio Fidel, accompanied by the Zionist Chaim Weizmann, had ambushed he and von Leto Vorbeck as they made their way to take their seats at the Council of Twelve. The 15-minute walk from the Hotel Zachary, twinned with the fact that these Germans could be seen leaving the hotel each morning, meant that it was relatively easy for the other delegates to ambush them as they walked. Horton had requested that they take a cab several times to avoid this show, but von Leto Vorbeck had turned down the idea. With the day of sitting that they had ahead of them, it did the nerves and constitution good to get a walk in early. With remarkable brevity and emotion, Weizmann and Fidel had expressed their main points to the Germans as they walked. Von Leto Vorbeck's attempt to increase his speed had only compelled Fidel and Weizmann to puff and pant as they followed suit, undeterred. Eventually, the two Germans had simply stopped, 
and Horton informed Fidel and Weizmann that tactics such as these were unbecoming of delegates of their stature. If they wanted to make an appeal, they ought to make it in person to the Council of Twelve. Very well, the two men had said, Zionism would have its case heard the next morning. Today was thus meant to be the day that Fidel and Weizmann made this case, but somehow Horton suspected that this case would not be made, considering the way the day was shaping up to be. As he marvelled at his privileged position in this historic conference, Horton glanced over to Karl Renner, who was in deep conversation with Paul von Leto Vorbeck. My point, General, is that we can only push the French so far. If Clemenceau is indeed to succumb to such a terrible fate, then it will be immensely difficult to proceed without the weight of suspicion hanging over us. Imagine, the crowds would whisper, that Germany needed only to rid themselves of the tiger to have their way. How convenient it was now that he was gone. I fear that the consequences will be grave indeed if the tiger is dead. Do not forget that we are currently in an enemy capital. There will be little protection afforded us here. Von Leto Vorbeck nodded in agreement, but he did wish that the Austrian Chancellor would not be so dramatic. God had granted Prussia profoundly useful opportunities in the last few weeks, as Germany's negotiating position had effectively been turned completely around. If Clemenceau was to be absent now, then he would not look such a gift horse in the mouth. This meant opportunity and reward if France was weakened. Imagine Prussia had returned now to menace France in her own capital, just as Prussia had herself been menaced by a French statesman in Vienna a century ago. He wished Karl Renner would see the irony, but the Austrian Chancellor was sweating. He was surely worried that his chances for being appointed alongside Germany as an accredited delegate on the Council of Twelve would decrease if the Allies felt their position continued to be threatened. Germany was tolerated now because the Allies more than outnumbered her, though some back-channel work, Horton had told him, had successfully been undertaken with the Japanese. While Clemenceau had refused to recognise their position as accredited German plenipotentiaries, other delegates had not followed suit. In the meantime, Germany's delegation had increased, as more civil servants were drafted to cope with the increased paperwork that this new opportunity presented to Germany. Almost immediately, without much hesitation, von Leto Vorbeck had turned to Poland. More specifically, he had demanded a renegotiation of the previous Polish border settlement which had granted Poland portions of Prussia. Now that Germany's empowered position was confirmed, von Leto Vorbeck was not about to settle for that state of affairs. In one of his first acts, Von Leto Vorbeck threw his weight firmly behind a renegotiation, which essentially turned into something of a shouting match. The Poles were persuaded to absorb Lithuania and avoid seizing any portions of Prussia at all. No Germans would be separated, no Poles would impress themselves upon the superior Prussians, and nature would take its logical course. Von Leto Vorbeck had worked hard to craft a steely public image in the last few days. Now that he was in this senior diplomatic position, it was essential that he be seen to keep his cool, as von Leto Vorbeck made use of this change in station by strategically losing his cool when he needed to make a point. The Polish delegation which had met von Leto Vorbeck had been somewhat shrunken in any case, as both Paderewski and Bognan Kudzal had gone with Woodrow Wilson to the United States in support of his league. With the Polish reduced to two delegates, a pro-German in Pavel Lobova and a dreamer of Commonwealth dreams in Josef Pilsudski, von Leto Vorbeck found that after some initial resistance, the two men assented to the changes 
which still cemented the Polish-German relationship into an alliance. It also helped Germany's case that Alexander Kerensky had seemingly vanished since first approaching the Poles. Von Leto Vorbeck had fanned rumours which whispered that the Russian had been abducted by German intelligence officers masquerading as Parisian tourists, but in reality, Von Leto Vorbeck had no idea where the Russian leader had gone to. What he did know was that Kerensky's absence served to sap Polish morale at a time when solidarity between Eastern powers was earnestly desired. In the absence of a solid Russian deal, the Poles had turned quickly to the German friendship, because this, at least, would help keep Bolshevism at bay. Of course, Clemenceau had been reluctant indeed to approve of this new settlement, believing that it granted Germany too much power and snatched Poland out from under the nose of Paris. Today, indeed, was meant to be the day when the Germans said conciliatory things and made firm promises of friendship to France, in return for official French recognition of the German delegation's status, loudly proclaimed in the press, it was said, and ratification of the German deal with Poland in the Council of Twelve. It was an ill omen indeed that just at the moment when the French Premier seemed on the verge of caving in to German olive branches, Clemenceau was struck down. Von Leto Vorbeck was just about to communicate this observation to Karl Renner, when the door burst open and a steaming Slovenian emerged from a cloud of smoke, as if by magic. Karhu Rosnak regretted bursting into the room almost immediately. The eyes of the Germanics were upon him, and he could feel his voice failing before Horton von Holzendorf spoke up. Herr Rosnak, sir, are you quite all right? Sirs, Rosnak gasped before coughing three times and taking another long drag. Von Leto Vorbeck rolled his eyes. I come representing the interests of Slovenia, and I wish to recommend my case to the Council of Twelve. I'm sorry you've come all this way, Herr Roseback, the Austrian Chancellor piped up, but the Council is not currently in session. Had that imp deliberately fudged his name? Roseback? Karhu Rosnak let it slide. Monsieur Clemenceau is in mortal danger, felled by an assassin's bullet, so I am told. Yes, von Leto Vorbeck confirmed. We learned as much thirty minutes ago. Terrible business. Rosnak believed he saw a flash of satisfaction pass von Leto Vorbeck's face, but perhaps that was just the rumours doing the work for him. Since you are all present, sirs, could I trouble you to hear my case? It will take but a few minutes. Monsieur Rosnak. Horton von Hotzendorf sighed. Germany wishes to do justice to small nations like Slovenia, especially with the rampant and flagrant disregard for international law demonstrated by the neighbouring Serbians. It was almost as though the mere mention of Serbia got the Austrian Chancellor Karl Renner's back against the wall. I will never speak ill of my peers in the Serbian delegation, Karl Renner interjected, but I make no secret of my contempt for that nation of assassins and scoundrels who wrecked the peace of the world and destroyed the natural order of man. This was interesting. Perhaps Renner's forthright condemnation of Serbia represented something in itself of an olive branch. I am eager to hear what Herr Roseback has to say, Renner said. I believe Austria could use a friend in Slovenia in such troubled times. Roseback? Again? Really? Still, though, the Austrian was at least offering him the floor. 
Brosnac lit a cigarette and offered one to each of the seated delegates. It was a strange scene indeed. A room with ten empty chairs, two seated Germans and one standing Austrian. But this was where history was made. Rosnack unfurled his notes and he saw von Leto Vorbeck's eyes widen. So much for taking but a few minutes. Before he'd even had a chance to begin though, the large oak door from which Rosnack had just burst through opened much more gently and a tall, slender, well-kept Japanese man walked into the room. Baron Makino Nabuaki, flanked by Prince Sharoon of Siam, apologised in perfect French for the interruption. He had heard that Clemenceau had been assassinated, and as he was present in the Quai d'Orsay for a meeting with the Siamese prince, he thought it best to hear the latest news from those assembled in the Council of Twelve. Nabuaki had a familiar look of puzzlement on his face, which Horton addressed by saying quickly, The other delegations have left to form their own picture of events. We stayed because secrets are kept better in here. The chairs are also much more comfortable. Baron Nabuaki did not need to be told. He had sat here several times as Japan's foreign minister. That morning he had elected not to turn up, for these successive meetings and Franco-German stonewalling had led nowhere, and he was also very weary of the process. Once Japanese interests were raised, he would be present. Nabuaki had found that, in any case, it was more useful to prowl around the Hotel Zachary, meeting with fellow delegates, rather than confine himself to this stuffy room. In the past few weeks, he had built up several useful contacts, but the friendship with the Siamese prince had proved the most enduring. Gentlemen, Karl Renner began, it would seem wise to vacate this room before some fell rumour of a conspiracy among us takes root. I have no time for rumours or rumour mongers, Herr Renner, von Leto Vorbeck began. Monsieur Nabuaki, would you care to dine with me later tonight? I believe Germany and Japan hold several interests in common, and I do not believe that these interests should be ignored for the sake of soothing allied sensibilities. Nabuaki nodded cautiously before adding, Japan has come to expect that Germany will be receptive to relinquishing her Asian possessions in favour of a Japanese administration. I am afraid I must base any prior German-Japanese relationship on the ceding of these territories. How do they say in America? Von Leto Vorbeck asked sarcastically. I believe the phrase is, you got it. Whatever you want in Asia is yours. Prussia has no need for such frivolous possessions. What we want are good deals and firm allies. Horton von Hotzendorf then interjected. Monsieur Nabuaki, perhaps you would be interested in joining a coalition of sorts. Poland and Austria have already signalled their interests. Slovenia will join that league as well. Rosnak piped up as he took another long pull. There you are then, Horton exclaimed. This is quite an arrangement we have here. What is the purpose of this coalition? Nabuaki said. An American league has already been established. Yes, the League of Nations does hold great potential, and Germany would happily acquiesce to join its ranks. However, in uncertain times like these, with danger lurking so nearby, it is necessary for us nations nearer the front line to take matters into our own hands. A coalition of eastern states against Bolshevism is in the process of being formed, but with Japan's presence, we could choke the Bolsheviks in the Far East as well as in Europe. We could also counter the imperialist designs of the Western allies upon Asia, specifically in Japan's rightful sphere of influence. Would you be receptive to this proposal? 
Nabuaki paused before replying. Give me a fortnight to make a decision. I must confer with Tokyo. Nabuaki then left the room, with Prince Shirun walking closely behind him. Herr von Hotzendorf, was that wise? Chancellor Renner asked. It may be a bit early to show our hand, don't you think? Perhaps, Horton replied. But the more open we are about this arrangement, the less suspicion we will incur. I have found that in this city, in my experience, nothing stays secret for very long. Have you tried to recruit any British or Italian members to that scheme? Von Leto Vorbeck asked. My friend, Horton chuckled. This is hardly a scheme. We operate here in the open, with the interests of all parties clearly expressed. Even so, Von Leto Vorbeck said, it may be useful to approach the Italians at least. I hear they have become very disenchanted as the Intermarium Free Trade Agreement continues to come under criticism. Could we pool our resources with the Intermarium Free Trade Agreement? An anti-Bolshevik coalition and a free trade agreement stretching across the heart of Europe? It sounds like a natural fit to me. Let me work on the diplomatic sphere, General. There is much work to do still in the military theatre. Have you managed to confirm Germany's military terms just yet? Not yet, Herr von Hotzendorf. Today was meant to be the day for such discussions. Just then, Horton von Hotzendorf had a thought. Herr Rosnack, he said with a hint of a question in his voice. Yes, replied the Slovenian nervously. As a member of the Intermarium Free Trade Agreement, would you be willing to serve as something of a go-between and represent the interests of the anti-Bolshevik coalition to its other members? I believe it is the closet Zionist, Herr Fidel, who speaks for the Intermarium Free Trade Agreement, Chancellor Renner added. Talk to Bonifacio Fidel first and sell this partnership with, oh, what is it they say in Italy, gusto? I will give him my best attempt, sirs, Rosnack said. Excellent, Horton replied. Such a combination will be considerable indeed. We must protect all of Germany's flanks now while we still can. Why? von Leto Vorbeck asked. Are we working on some kind of particular deadline? Do you plan on leaving us or something? It's not about who is leaving, my friend. It's about who will soon be returning. The Americans will not stay away forever, and I can't imagine that President Wilson will be particularly pleased that we have effectively usurped his league and his Supreme Council. Is it true that Wilson has plans to reconcile with his arch-foe, the radical Roosevelt? Karl Renner asked. Indeed, Horton von Hotzendorf scoffed. Americans and their politics. What do you imagine caused these two men to bury the hatchet? Money? Power? Opportunism? According to a friend in the American delegation, von Leto Vorbeck began, the major motivating factor was an undercurrent of fear. Fear, Chancellor Renner exclaimed. Fear of what, exactly? Is it not obvious, Herr Renner, von Leto Vorbeck interjected with a certain unmistakable gleam in his eye. It is a fear of us. Edward Hess was having trouble sleeping. It was 2am on the 26th of February, 1919. If the rumours he was hearing were true, then he did not imagine he would get sleep for some time. The vanquished and the newly created working together in Paris? He rolled over to this side and that before giving up and staring at the ceiling. 
He knew it had been a mistake to legitimise the German delegation and grant them plenipotentiary powers to sit on the Council of Ten. Oh, wait, make that Council of Twelve. Since the middle of February, matters had only gotten worse. He needed Wilson to return, yet the extended trip across the United States continued to occupy the President's attention. He had heard glowing praise from a number of promotional tours, as the famed Paderewski had lit up the room with his impassioned playing. Did Paderewski know that his compatriots had signed a deal with Germany? An anti-Bolshevik coalition and the Intermarium Free Trade Agreement, two large blocs existing in distant troubled theatres, and now they were reportedly cooperating, perhaps even merging. When his informant had delivered this news, House did not hesitate, and he communicated the development immediately to the other American delegates. Those four Americans, Walter Cameron, Oliver Flanagan, William Randolph Hearst and Bruce Pug, had all impressed him greatly in the last few weeks. They had really stepped up their game, and had continued to urge compromise and cooperation between the current and former president. House would believe it when he saw it, but he confessed that it warmed his heart to read the letters which this four-man team had passed to their de facto chief. Roosevelt had represented the de facto fifth column in Paris ever since his arrival, but the communications of these Americans made it plain that they wished merely to serve America's interests. Could Roosevelt, now accompanying Wilson around on his American tour, be trusted to follow suit? House decided to read this communique again. He couldn't sleep anyway. He may as well remind himself of this latest positive development in American politics. His tired eyes scanned the document, for what was probably the fifth time that day. The document was addressed to Theodore Roosevelt, but had been forwarded to House and to Wilson's staff in Washington as well. It read, Mr. President, we wish to offer you our heartfelt respect for you as the de facto head of the American delegation in these opening weeks. Your steady voice and imagination for the future of peace in Europe has led to a foundation of new, permanent, lasting peace across the continent without entangling the United States into restrictive covenants. We feel we all serve, ultimately, at the pleasure of your dear friend, Senator Lodge, who was instrumental in his role as head of the Foreign Relations Committee to appoint us with three goals. Peace in Europe, the power of the United States to interact with other nations without unconstitutional restrictions placed upon it, and placing Germany in such a position that it will be physically impossible for her to break out again upon other nations with a war for world conquest. We feel we have served well in incorporating Senator Lodge's concerns in the formulation of the League of Nations Treaty. You are a dear friend to all of us, and we believe that Senator Lodge's trust in you has proven to be well-founded. Now with the League of Nations Treaty drafted and the prospect of the German delegation joining the conference, we find ourselves at a critical impasse. At this moment, events are highly in our favour, but things could fall apart quickly. We fear Germany's incorporation into the peace process could lead to chaos. Senator Lodge also fears that the passage of this highly favourable league may not be possible without democratic votes in favour. Remember, the Republican Party holds only a 49 to 47 majority in the Senate, and we shall need two-thirds majority to pass the treaty. It would be easy for the President Wilson and the Democrats to disavow the treaty were they ousted from the delegation. We cannot be viewed as the party that sinks the peace in Europe. We feel that you shall be a sound voice for the league and against German aggression. But the ultimate role of chief diplomat falls on the sitting president of the United States of America. Let us work together as voices shouting out, rather than voices shouting from the cold. We humbly ask in the interests of peace and security that you withdraw your name from consideration as head of the American delegation. 
You remain our president, our commander, our leader and our friend. Signed. He had only just finished reading the document when he heard a knock on his door. Who could be calling at a time like this? Unless it was urgent. Sure enough, a man stood outside his door bearing a large envelope. Mr. House, the man said. This comes straight from the desk of President Roosevelt. He wanted you to read it. House felt his stomach lurch. Was there a chance that the cantankerous old man had listened to reason and accepted something of what his delegates had written? The fact that he was writing directly to him now, all the way from the United States, suggested as much. House closed the door and plopped the letter on the bed. It was weighted with importance, and it bore Roosevelt's signature on the front. The man had signed the front of the telegram, so as to confirm its authenticity. It was almost as though Roosevelt did not expect House to believe that Woodrow Wilson's nemesis had written this letter, and as House began to read it, he was not surprised. Through the memo, Roosevelt communicated his assent with his delegates, but reasoned at the same time that Woodrow Wilson would be in need of help, especially considering the developments in the Council of Twelve, which had seen the Germans become rather big for their boots, amidst the subsequent weakening of the French position, as Clemenceau had recuperated and left a power vacuum in place. The memo was addressed first and foremost as a reply to the American delegates still in Paris, but Roosevelt had taken the opportunity to personally address a copy to House. This was significant indeed. Roosevelt's memo read as follows. My dear colleagues, thank you for the honour of your interest in my assuming leadership of the United States delegation to this peace conference. In examination of the United States Constitution and in consultation with my delegation, I conclude that it is best for the success of this conference if I decline to participate in a change in top leadership of the US delegation. The United States Constitution specifies that diplomacy is the authority of the President, There is no provision for the President to be denied this authority by votes of an extra-national conference. Thus I would have no authority within the United States to preside over our delegation, and any treaty that resulted would be unfavourably viewed by the ratifying authority, the US Senate. I have received many requests to replace Mr. Wilson at this conference by various delegates. After the euphoric enthusiasm in December, there is increasing dissatisfaction with him. We do need to invigorate the conference. I propose that the conference communicate with Mr. Wilson, first, our enthusiasm for the League of Nations as described in the draft treaty, second, our recognition of his superhuman, exhaustive efforts, third, our suggestion that he could be more effective and focused if he created an assistant delegation chairman, and four, he could accomplish greater Republican support from the Senate if he would appoint a former Republican president as his assistant. In such a position, I could free him to continue developing broad, idealistic goals, while I could focus on the specifics of negotiating peace. Your support is greatly appreciated. Let us continue to work together for peace. Signed, Theodore Roosevelt, former President of the United States of America. The message was here clearly expressed. Roosevelt, the arch-nemesis of Woodrow Wilson, was willing to compromise with him if the President took him into the five-man American delegation. He would refrain from undermining him, he would commend his work, and he would petition his Republican allies to support this version of Wilson's vision. This would mean that Roosevelt would be more visible and would likely sit on the Council of Twelve several times, but it also meant additional support for the Covenant of the League of Nations. And a strong, experienced voice 
in favour of Wilson's policy line. House could hardly believe what he was reading. It seemed that the pressure exerted by the Germans had been too much, and it had pushed even these two arch-enemies together. All that remained was for Woodrow Wilson to approve. House set to work. It was now 3.15am, and another full day awaited him in a few hours. But if he could persuade his good friend and president to receive this olive branch gracefully and accept Roosevelt's offer, then it was entirely possible that the Allied cause would be guaranteed to succeed, regardless of who sat on the Council of Twelve. So, House set to work, penning his appeal to the President. If anyone could convince his friend of the need to bury the hatchet with Roosevelt, it was Edward Mandel House. Around the same time, as House scrambled to confirm the rapprochement between Roosevelt and Wilson, the British were up to their old tricks again. The last week of February had seen the British delegates, Sir Alistair Tancred and Arthur Fitzwilliam, turn their attentions towards Turkey and the partition of its lands. In cooperation with the French, who offered their limited support as the German threat loomed, Tancred and Fitzwilliam discovered that they were largely free to partition Turkey, particularly in the West. With the German threat in mind, sorting out Turkey before Germany's delegates threw their weight around much more became a priority. If they acted quickly, the Middle East could be partitioned between Britain and France, the new states of Kurdistan and Armenia would be confirmed on Turkey's eastern borders, and in the west, the Greeks would be allowed to gain portions of Asia Minor, where ethnic Greeks were allowed to live. This arrangement, which was confirmed in the Severus Treaty in the final days of February, represented an early solution to the Ottoman problem, but not everyone was satisfied. Prince Navar Sharif of Arabia was deeply vexed at the increased British presence in the Middle East. It seemed his family had merely swapped its Ottoman overlords for those of the British and French. If he was to give his blessing to this arrangement, Sharif signalled that he would require guarantees and recognition of the Sharif dynasty's possession of the Arabian Peninsula with a corridor to the Mediterranean. These demands were steep, but Sharif promised that if he was given these concessions, he would serve the British and French as a loyal friend in the region. For Albert Clavel and René Massigli, it was difficult to focus on far-flung theatres like the Middle East when France's immediate security was in peril. Yet, French possession of Syria had long been an important feather in the French cap, and in league with the British, these possessions would help guarantee Anglo-French cooperation into the future. Whatever happened, it was vital that these two allies did not fall out over the Middle East. The Western Border Settlement had granted France several concessions at the expense of Germany, and it was almost certain that once she was able, Germany's empowered delegates would come knocking for the reworking of this settlement. This fear, combined with the evidence that the Intermarium Free Trade Agreement might be combining with the anti-Bolshevik coalition, led the Anglo-French to partition up the Ottoman Empire with considerable haste, but with little actual consideration for the knock-on effects. Premier Venizelos of Greece, to take one example, viewed the partition of Turkey and the fatal weakening of the Asia Minor state as an ideal opportunity. While a military action against Turkey had always been in the pipeline, Venizelos was now informed by the Greek general staff that the opportunity for exploiting Turkish weakness had never been greater. A great Greek empire incorporating Constantinople, vast swathes of Asia Minor, and complete jurisdiction over these vital sea lanes was the end goal, 
and with the Western Allies utterly distracted with the resurgent German problem in Europe, there was great cause for optimism that the creation of this Greek dream would finally be possible. As the Anglo-French parceled up the lands of the Ottoman Empire, as the Germans made waves on the Council of Twelve, and as House worked to bring the two presidents closer together for the common good, another meeting was taking place in a dark room in the back of the Hotel Zachary. This was a gathering of dominions. Arthur McCallville of Newfoundland, David McKay of Australia, Louis Botha of South Africa, and Sir Robert Borden of Canada had assembled on the 28th of February 1919 for the express purpose, it was said, of containing this resurgent German threat and defending the empire. The absence of so many important Allied leaders in the last two weeks of February had played havoc with the organisation and nerves of the Dominions. Suddenly, the Germans were entitled to sit and vote on the Council of Ten, which they had recast as the Council of Twelve. Did this not mean that Germany would attempt to undo all the good work that had been done, or that Germany would look for her rights to be returned in the Pacific and in Africa? Not so, Paul von Leto Vorbeck had claimed, so long as certain concessions in other areas were granted. German participation in the anti-Bolshevik coalition and the agreement of that institution with the Intermarium Free Trade Agreement represented something of a colossus if its powers could be properly harnessed. Ostensibly, of course, the Germans vowed to use their membership in these groupings to reduce the powers of Bolshevism, but rumour had it that they intended to leverage their newly acquired powers to stand up to Allied demands too. The impossible borders of Poland had actually been settled, with both sides apparently satisfied. This had taken a major advantage out of Allied hands. With Poland pacified, at least for now, the Western Allies would not be able to use Poland against Germany. Paul von Leto Vorbeck and Horten von Hotzendorf had proved adept at leveraging their membership of these bodies, but they'd also demonstrated their willingness to negotiate on the size of Germany's army. Stephen Pichon, who was holding the fort as France's leading statesman, so long as Clemenceau was convalescing, had proved susceptible to negotiating on the size of the German army, a very sensitive point in France, in return for certain promises to the Germans if they saw things the French way. This created an opening for Germany, and several dangers, but there was at least hope that when Clemenceau returned to the Council of Twelve, he would be able to restore some steel in the French position. These dominions could not wait for such an eventuality to take place, though. They determined to release a joint statement without British prompting, which would confirm the military solidarity of the Empire's contingent parts. As Tancred and Fitzwilliam were occupied with expansion into the Middle East and defending France and Europe, these dominions were determined to support the British civilising effort across the world by committing to pool military, naval and economic forces around Western Europe, specifically on the Western Front. A commitment to undertake a defence of the Western Front and a public declaration of military solidarity would send a clear message to Germany. These dominions were neither content to allow France to be overcome in some diplomatic offensive, nor were they willing to allow Germany to claw back its position in the different theatres, be that in the Pacific or Africa. Thus, while the declaration served as a message of strength, it also guaranteed that Germany would be permanently excluded from those spheres where she had once menaced the South African and Australian securities in particular. Again, it was accepted that the value of this meeting and its rhetoric was largely symbolic. The dominions would be with Britain no matter the conflict or the cause. 
yet to declare so publicly without British prompting testified to the fact that the world was not willing to let Germany away with anything. If necessary, Louis Botha boomed, South Africa would renew the war and would even send her forces into Germany. After liaising with the Belgian Foreign Minister Paul E. Mons, General David McKay knew that Australian troops would be welcome in Belgium as well. Newfoundland could not offer much, and Canadian interests had never been affected too much by the Germans, but in the spirit of Dominion cooperation, all declared their intentions to offer troops if needs be. A memorandum confirming this was passed to Sir Alistair Tancred on the 28th of February 1919, and it read... Gentlemen of the Empire and the wider world, it has come to the attention of the dominions of the British Empire that Germany has managed to gain a strong foothold in the Council at Paris. Due to the profound implications of this turn of events and the potential damage it could inflict on the security interests of the Dominion powers, the leaders of the Union of South Africa, of Canada, Newfoundland and Australia resolved to defend jointly and in tandem that sensitive region of the Western Front and to act independent of British finance and cost but still beholden to British advice and considerations. We declare our joint determination to defend the interests of His Majesty across the world, and we are determined to uphold Anglo-Saxon civilization wherever it resides. Further, we declare our intention to defend, by military means if necessary, the recently won peace, and to frustrate at all costs any efforts by the vanquished to avenge themselves upon the victorious powers during this sensitive time. No power, and no coalition of powers, shall be permitted to violate the freedoms of the world. Signed, Sir Robert Borden, Canada, General Louis Botha, South Africa, Arthur McCallville, Newfoundland, and General David McKay, Australia. The implications of this declaration of solidarity were obvious. The Dominions were returning home to Europe to defend democracy and freedom against the German threat. Whether overblown or not, this German threat had become a source of great anxiety for much of Europe, and now, so it seemed, the wider world. While so much remained up in the air, and while the Germans in the Council of Twelve were still in a position to capitalise upon the resulting power vacuum left by Georges Clemenceau, the danger appeared potent indeed. Yet, it was said, within the week, everything was liable to change. Georges Clemenceau would be returning to the Council of Twelve, the Dominions would be arriving in force, according to the statement they had just made. The Italian and British premiers would also be returning to Paris, and the American president, perhaps with Theodore Roosevelt by his side, would be en route from the United States as well. Then the true test would come. Could the German delegates maintain their gains? Would they lose them all? Or could a balance between the two sides be found, which would preserve peace for all time and rid the world once and for all of the plague of war. Time, indeed, would tell the tale. So that, dear delegates, is the end of the episode. Here we have seen several things take shape which you've set in motion before, but also other things develop which I imagined according to the consequences of your actions. The Germans were seated at the Council of Twelve and had plans to merge the Intermarium Free Trade Agreement and anti-Bolshevik coalition. I imagined this development happening because the two blocs see a lot of things similarly and also, by combining together, they can avenge themselves against whatever the Western powers might do. It also plays upon the hostility which IFTA seems to feel for the Western powers and Germany wants to take advantage of that. 
The Western Allies would soon be buoyed by the return of their leaders, and even the Dominions had made it plain that they would resist aggression with forces of their own. Turkey was effectively no more, and would exist as a rump state in Asia Minor, with Constantinople opened to the world. This opened doors for Greece, which could avenge the histories of the Ottomans taking advantage of Greece by launching an invasion of western Anatolia two months earlier than what historically took place to take advantage of the death of Turkish morale in the face of these Turkish partitions. How would Britain and France cooperate in the Middle East, and could the French hold back the Germans from taking in peacetime what they had lost in war? Would the return of the Allied leaders occasion a swing in the balance of power back in favour of the Allies? And if that happened, would the deals which the Germans had made in the last two weeks of February be sufficient to guard their position against attack? Time would tell, but you must also have your say. This week we have a very important vote for you to consider. This concerns the fate of Georges Clemenceau. In real life, Clemenceau returned on the 1st of March to the Council of Ten. In our timeline, though, he took a little longer to ensure that he was fully rested to confront this German presence in the Council of Twelve. While he recuperated, he was still vulnerable. So perhaps my starkest voting option ever reads like this. Do you allow Georges Clemenceau to recover, or do you attempt to finish the job and remove him from the Council of Twelve permanently? Obviously, this vote will have profound implications for how the peace conference develops, so choose carefully. With all that done then, I will take my leave. Happy voting and scheming over the next week, dear delegates. It's great to be back, and I will see you next time at the Hotel Zachary. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.